Rob, it's the intro to the intro. It's the bit before the podcast starts where we kind of give an overview of everything that's on the podcast. Yes, it is. And it's good to be back for our first episode of season three. Season three. And uh, well, this month we've got all of our usual favourites. We've got some fantastic tech news, including ear tickling and free coffee from Facebook. Wow. Thanks, Facebook. And who's our guest on this week's show? Mr. Dan Harvey, who may actually, unfortunately, say some slightly less favourable things about Facebook. He may, and I guess we should probably say that there is some explicitness in the language and there's just far too many swear words for Mark to bleep them all. Except that one, which hopefully he bleeped as it was the warning about the swear words. Yes, it's a bit of an explicit episode due to the content and context that we're covering in our interview. But a good one nonetheless. We're also covering a special surprise in our CTO story segment. We're talking about lost felines and looking at a bit of a throwback on Gartner's hype curves this season. We are, of course, brought to you with disruptionhub.com. And you can keep up with us at Alexa underscore stop on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Alexa, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. This Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Well, hello and welcome to season three of Alexa Stop. My name is Jim Bowes and the man opposite me is Mr. Robert Belgrave. How are you? A married man back in the studio. Yeah, good to be back after our poolside recording for our little... Uh, highlights reel package that we put out at the end of season two the question is can we remember how to do this i think so yeah i think we've got a good episode coming up we've got a great episode coming up i'm really looking forward to it actually it's good to be back good to be back on the horse (laughs) back on the horse yeah we were talking about mri scanning of horses before we started recording we were indeed but that's probably a bit of a tangent is it a tangent i mean are the tangents on this program i mean that was an mri scanner that's technology that's what we're all about how technology is changing people's lives and in this case horses lives for the better and we love to help horses <laughs> i mean do we i don't know i've never i've not can't say i've helped many horses turns out we do maybe there'll be some horses in the news jim what have we got this month well we've got a jingle to get this bit going because do you know what it's the news it's the news oh yes it is the news i feel like one day we're gonna have to learn the harmony for that yeah, do you want to try now? No, not now. <laughs> not now? No, no, maybe for next month. What's our first story? Something about ears and tickling of them. We can talk about ear tickling, if that is what you'd like to uh, like did, to talk about did, first. Did you see my harmony ear tickling segue ah, there? It's a did beautiful you, did thing. Did you miss that? So researchers have found that having your ear tickled might help you slow the ageing process. What? Because it does something about your sympathetic and parasympathetic activity and means that your nervous system is kind of like restored in a good way and it means that you sleep better and you get better sort of restorativeness uh, and that means that your aging process is slowed good work yeah did well there yeah Uh, parasympathetic is a word i've never heard before i'd never heard either of those words (laughs) i think i think i could tell i was just pleased i'd remembered them you did very well so any guidance to our listeners well i suppose what it is really that you maybe could buy some equipment to help tickle your ears yeah you could ask a friend to tickle your ears okay or partner or like when we were in south by southwest and i just really wanted to buy something at the trade show i suppose i could attach that electric shock thing i bought to my ears yeah that would kind of be a tickling sensation and always seek consent before tickling or receiving tickling are you ticklish mm, do you have ticklish no. feet don't think so no don't people grow out of that what have it being ticklish no, no. Oh, you're, I d- you're kind I of did. either ticklish or you're not okay 
I mean, I don't really know how ticklishness works I'm and not whether it's a sort of thing that you can psychologically control. I'm not sure we can test this one on the radio. We can test you know. it, but whether it makes good radio is a completely different question. A question we'll answer on a further episode. So should we, should we move it on? Uh, my favourite story of this week has been the controversy slash hating on WeWork. Yeah, the WeWork IPO nonsense. Have you seen the Scott Galloway hot take that went around on Twitter? I did not see that. Scott Galloway... I'm a bit of a fanboy. I don't know why I'm spontaneously plugging someone else's podcast, but that's what's about to happen. Uh, check out the Pivot podcast that Scott does with Cara Swisher every week, where they basically just rant about tech and stocks and, you know, all that's the good stuff. I can't imagine many people listening to this don't know what WeWork is, but just in case. So WeWork is a shared workspace. You buy a membership for a monthly fee, which is normally about £450 a month. It's workspace as a service. It's workspace as a service. What that actually means... You can have a recurring revenue model for it. Is you get a, a desk that's slightly nicer than an IKEA desk in a cool building somewhere. And they have like shared services, which means a beer tap and a barista and sofas, right? And a load of made.com furniture. I'm being a bit... A self-service, identify yourself to get access kind of feature. Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of tech-enabled stuff. And you know what? As disparaging as I'm being, it's a really good product, right? It's, It's succeeded because it filled a gap in the market and... You know, people joke about, oh, it's, you know, you pay £450 to look like you're busy and all this stuff. But actually, it has created something that a lot of startups particularly have found very useful. It gives them a kind of community to be part of when they're still small. There's a lot of collaboration that can happen between the different businesses. And there's a a reason why co-working spaces have completely taken off. However, WeWork is a business that, while being a fantastic business, is probably worth two or three billion dollars. And they are trying to IPO WeWork for $45 billion, which is, frankly, hilarious. It's a joke. It might be the most ridiculous IPO of a year that has included Uber and Lyft's IPOs. Which were fairly ridiculous. Which were fairly ridiculous. And, uh, you know, to coin Mr. Galloway, Professor Galloway, should I say, maybe the, how did he put it, collaborative hallucination may come to an end with this one and the markets might wake up a little bit. But unfortunately, the people that suffer from these huge overpriced IPOs are retail investors, not investment banks. And if this doesn't go well, it'll be, you know, people with 401ks in America, pension funds, etc., who will suffer almost certainly. And no doubt the chief CEO of WeWork will walk away with however many billion dollars and ride off into the sunset. And some of the backstory is really fascinating because uh, he fairly recently sold 700 million pounds worth of shares, I think. Yeah, that's about right. So I don't know about you, Jim, but nothing says confidence in your upcoming IPO to me like predisposing of 700 million dollars worth of stock. But my favourite part of the CEO story is that he owned the trademark to WeWork and sold it to the company that he was CEO and major shareholder of for a very large sum of money. Yeah, so his family office was called We Group. I didn't know you could trademark the word we, but, you know, apparently you can. And they decided they'd very graciously sell the use of the word we back to the company he is indeed the CEO of for $5 million, which apparently was externally audited to be a legitimate transaction. And I'm sure the auditor enjoyed their 20%. Of I'm that. sure they did. Yes. Um, yeah, no, and just an amazing story. And the, um, the deck for the IPO includes, I think, something like, over 120 mentions of the CEO, which was something like more than five times as many as Uber's mentions for their CEO in their IPO work. So just sort of a lot of ego going on around WeWork. And, you know, a company that has enormous lease liabilities and people that can choose not to be there on very short notice. So crazy valuation, I suppose, is the story. Great business, 
the lifeblood of many of the amazing tech businesses that have changed people's lives, which we love covering on this show, but unbelievably overpriced valuation. Do not invest in this company. You know, this is financial advice. Don't invest in WeWork. <laughs> Just in case anyone's wondering, that was not financial advice. <laughs> no, that was... Uh, for educational purposes only. If you want Rob's share tips newsletter, please sign up to the appropriate sign up on whatever Rob's website is for that. But that's not what Alexa stops here for. No. Something that we've needed for a very long time has sort of happened. AR uh, Maps? AR Maps. Yeah, Google have finally released the AR interface for their Maps application. So I'm sure everybody listening to this has Google Maps on their phone and probably uses it reasonably frequently. I'm sure we're all very familiar, particularly those of us that live in large capital cities or, or larger cities, with that feeling when you whip your phone out, put the address in, and you just can't quite work out which way you're meant to be facing. And you normally have to walk sort of 100 meters in the wrong direction before the compass kicks in and you realize, fuck, it's actually the other way I should be going. I've done it today. I got the tube to Kennington today for a meeting, and I'm like, I've not been in here, here for about 10 years. And I just turned around and walked a bit for a while. So Google have launched a new feature for Maps, which should be available to all of you right now if you've got the latest version of the app, which is AR, so augmented reality, which means you can hold your phone up and look through it, and it kind of activates the camera and will paint these sort of virtual markers in the real world that you can see through your camera lens of your phone, basically giving you big arrows to follow, and eventually they'll like paint a line on the road and all that kind of stuff, so... And of course, when we were talking about this earlier, the thing that you said, which you know, I think is true about this, is that once someone has made a wearable glasses product that people actually want to buy, then this will all come together and actually be very useful in our lives. Yeah, I think the AR stuff, like we covered AR Minecraft, right, which is coming, I think it's actually out now for limited beta people. And Pokemon Go obviously is the one everyone remembers in the AR space. But all of these different kind of AR things are basically all going to suddenly be really relevant when somebody finally cracks the wearable AR layer, which essentially is a pair of glasses. Apple still notoriously are working hard, beavering away in sort of super secret bunkers on their glasses product. Google obviously continuing what was literally called Google Glass and have got various iterations. Microsoft are working hard on HoloLens, which is a slightly different take, but there's a lot of stuff coming in that space over the next few years. But I think, as we said, you know, the people that do the licensing deal with Ray-Ban may be the people that win at this game. Yeah, this might be our second investment tip of the episode. <laughs> Whoever ends up buying Ray-Ban and sticking AR kit into Ray-Bans is probably the one you want to look at. What would you like to talk about next, Rob? Would you like to talk about Facebook or Twitter? This is a story of two halves, which leads to our interview, doesn't it? And as we have mentioned in our intro, the amazing Dan Harvey will be joining us to talk about all kinds of interesting things about big tech. So two stories that have happened over the last few weeks. First of all, Facebook. So many of you will know that Facebook haven't exactly had the best track record on the privacy front. It's fair to say. Been a rough year. It's been a rough few years. But, you yeah. know, at least Zook has had a chance to, like, try out his suit. The apology tour was sellout. The, the apology tour. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a sort of really bad heavy metal band. It was pretty bad. Unfortunately, there wasn't much metal. But Facebook have decided what they're going to do is they're going to roll out a campaign. This feels like an agency campaign yeah. to me. Do you think they've like got an experiential agency to help them with their plan? I think they might have done. Because Hi, what? I'm Jim Bowes from <laughs> Experial Agency Philia. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in fairness, 
Manifesto would totally do this in, yeah. a, in a much more tasteful way for a more meaningful business than Facebook. It, it, either Manifesto or Glow would take it on and we'd like do it through the, the medium of retro dance. And look, Wahive would happily do the technology. So, you know, do get in touch. But joking apart, Facebook have decided to roll out these pop-up cafes in England and they are going to offer free coffee and privacy consultations. Do you think they should be pop-up tea rooms? <laughs> yeah they're doing it in the uk yeah they've got this wrong haven't they, they just bring in their starbucks over know, right? here those guys i mean to be fair i would go and talk about privacy for a free scone and a cream tea wouldn't you like i'd like it to be very civilized i'd like a civilized conversation about privacy where actually everyone feels that it's a bit of a taboo and we never quite get to the real <laughs> stuff we want to talk about <laughs> yes i mean they missed a trick here they should have come to manifesto they should have made it awkward <laughs> this is what triple a manifesto strategy gets you listeners yeah. Okay, so this was Facebook's offering to the consumer to try and help people take control of their privacy while enjoying a free caffeinated beverage. Do they help you, like, leave Facebook? (laughs) Is that the way that you take control? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that does not come up as one of the options. Whereas Twitter, I had a big debate with some people who listen to this podcast who know who they are about this, but I think it's unprecedented what they've done. So what did they do? They called out a state-sponsored propaganda campaign i guess would be in the a best fairly way to say big it. way as well yeah in a pretty serious way so right now we're recording this in uh, sort of late august the hong kong protests are in i know in, in hong kong obviously just off mainland china are going on right now they've been going on for weeks it's causing absolute chaos some of our friends including alex ho are over there and you know it's quite concerning actually like seeing the photos firsthand like it's it's really bad what's going down over there and there's this whole kind of tension and interplay between the mainland China government and Hong Kong, obviously, since it's kind of been repatriated and slowly being reintegrated into China. And 28 years remaining till the current uh, set of is that agreement right? uh, runs out. Yeah. OK, interesting. And basically, this all seems to stem from a law that got proposed to allow extradition of citizens from Hong Kong back to China. That seems to have been the kind of straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, that's there. There's a sort of underlying sort of tension about gradual diminishing of rights. Yeah. And and, and there's the sort of 50-year period that was agreed with the handover from the UK ticks down. Yeah. Um, and the sort of lack of general democracy for lots of things, that, that things act, act as triggers, and, and this is a trigger. But there's a sort of strong heritage of... Uh, of protest in, in, in Hong Kong over a number of things. And, and at the moment, yes, yeah, certainly this is the thing that's flaring up. To bring this back to our theme of tech and how it changes people's lives, right? I think what's interesting about what's going on in Hong Kong particularly is that technology is enabling, as we've seen in a lot of these kind of, I guess, humanitarian crises, but also political unrest and you know general kind of revolution, is that technology creates this amazing lens through which the world sees firsthand what's going on. Also, they think. Yeah, because social media is the propagation for this type of content, largely, and also becomes a primary source for a lot of news and coverage in international press. And so what Twitter did was they called out a state-sponsored propaganda operation, which was being run by China, or Twitter claim that it was being run by China, and they wrote a full article about this and they provided a full dump of 300 megabytes worth of tweets, which for the less technically savvy is a lot of tweets, including all kinds of photos, bots and fake profiles that were suggesting that the people who were protesting in Hong Kong were criminals and they were doing all the terrible stuff and get out of Hong Kong, we don't want you here, was kind of the, the sentiment, right? I think it's amazing that Twitter have done that. I'm not foolish enough not to acknowledge that that is 
potentially a dangerous precedent as well and is something that's quite interesting is like when you take a view on like i guess censorship right as a platform what does that mean and, and maybe we won't go too far into that now because we're going to talk down about this stuff in detail but. yeah and i think facebook joined in by um disallowing some pages and some accounts as well yeah um, i think what both of them did under their terms of service was um deny and close these accounts under the coordinated activity element yes so not what they were saying but more the fact that it was deliberate coordination between multiple fake accounts closing down stuff under tos happens routinely day in day out it was the way they came out publicly that I found really interesting, yeah, right? Super interesting. Sharing the tweets as well, you know, because that's pointing the finger in a pretty major way. And so that's the thing maybe we'll talk about a bit later on. Indeed. And have you got something that you'd like to tell us about AI before we roll into a story from someone CTO? You know, we sometimes shove these AI segments in. Jim, for some reason, hasn't done a wonderful jingle for us this month, but... Do I normally do a jingle for this, for AI? I think there's an AI jingle. Is it? I imagine it's a bit sort of like techno. It's sort of like AI, 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 AI. So you can't really hear all of it. Yeah, let's go with that. This was just a really kind of humorous soundbite that I picked up over the last month. So one of the things everyone's really like terrified about and this kind of whole alarmist stuff around AI is like maybe one day we'll hand over control to some AI-driven system for things like weaponry, I don't know, nuclear warfare or whatever, and AI might decide to kill us all, right? It's the Skynet scenario, which we're all all too familiar with. They are indeed making follow-ups to The Matrix, so, you know. They are. The Matrix 4 was also announced this month. That is a tangent, but a, a good one. Anyway, there was this system that got created, and it was designed to help figure out how to land aeroplanes, so consumer planes, you know, commercial jets, with the minimal force possible, which, as someone that is now married to a fearful flyer, takeoffs and landings are the hard bit, right? Particularly a hard landing really freaks people out. So I can see why... It's also the highest risk part yeah, of Yeah, yes, there's so a whole if, safety if element If someone's it. scared of the takeoff and landing, that's perfectly rational. Yeah, if they have statistically, a they are more likely to die on landing, yes. And so... This is the sort of thing that is great to give to a computer to optimize, right? This is what machine learning is really good at, is, is trying something in simulation again and again and again and working out how to do it really well. Hopefully to then be handed the task in a kind of autopilot context and to do a better job than a human can, augmenting the pilot's capability. So far, so good. However, this computer system worked out that the score that it received based on the impact of the landing, higher being better, if it crashed the plane into the ground in the simulation it would overflow the memory of the computer program that was designed to run the simulation resulting in a perfect score being awarded and what happened was this machine learning algorithm then set about crashing the plane millions and millions of times as optimally as possible receiving perfect scores throughout presumably killing all of the virtual people in every simulation and thought it had done a fantastic job Feels like a sort of slightly incorrect data point here. Like when Citroen invented the 2CV, it was made so part of the design requirements, one of the user stories was yeah. that, for it was that a farmer could carry a box of eggs on the back seats across a farm field. And so there's just that little bit of input that needs to go into that algorithm, which is don't forget about the passengers. They are your 2CV box of eggs. An amusing one, but perhaps a little snapshot of some of the challenges that AI and machine learning researchers have in the years ahead. We won't put them in charge yet. Note to Boeing. <laughs> Come on, note to Airbus. Boeing have had a hard enough year. <laughs> That's another stock you shouldn't buy. That's three. There you go. Third time lucky. Rob Stock Tips on Alexa Stop, season three. So should we do a story from a CTO? I said a story from a CTO. 
We should, and I note that you say a CTO as opposed to my CTO because, listeners, as a very special treat for the first episode of season three before usual service is resumed, and I assure you I've got some fantastic stories to share, but today we are going to give Jim the floor to hear a story from Jim's CTO. Yes, it doesn't happen often, but Pat, my CTO here at Manifesto, came in a couple of weeks ago uh, and he received a, a phone call. And the phone call said it was from a vet in Dartford and someone phoning to say, I've got your cat here in Dartford. Now, Pat lives in West London. What's Pat's cat called? I don't know what Pat's cat's called. Let's call it Toby the cat. Now, Pat had left home about 7 a.m. Okay. And he'd let the cat out at about 6 a.m. And it was now about, let's say, 11 a.m. So he had this conundrum of how did my cat get to Dartford? Uh, Was it catnapped? Did it jump in someone's car? Did someone then drive all the way around the M25? These are all viable options. Take it to Kent. So he phoned his wife and said, the cat... I was going to say, I hear the fish and chips is good in Kent. He's obviously (laughs) ruled that out early as an option. Yeah. Okay, carry on. So uh, he phones his wife and says, the cat's in Kent. Anya, Pat's wife, is confused about this. And uh, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to work out how I'm going to get myself to Kent. But then about 15 minutes after that call, the cat comes back in at home. (laughs) So the cat has returned uh, and then it's like, ah, okay, so there could be a sort of chip issue here. So takes the cat to the vets, gets the chip checked because they thought maybe they had the wrong cat. Some weird sort of cat swap had happened. (laughs) Um, But it turns out there are two cats that have been given the same data. So there's been some sort of chip data transfer ETL error data problem that's occurred uh, and it takes the cto to work out what's gone on here that there's a you know a data issue when it comes to the cat chip technology that's taking place turns out his cat's been in hammersmith all along it's all fine and there's another cat so it's like cat identity theft effectively is what's right. happened wow well i'm glad to hear toby's okay toby the cat too <laughs> who we don't know if he's called toby and there we go a, a story, story from, from jim's CTO. my cto yeah, yeah. lovely Right, before we uh, crack on and do our interview, why don't we cover something from the hype curve? And I we- said it's something from the hype curve! For season three, we thought rather than drag up something that's coming up in the future from the hype curve, there was this amazing imager link that went around recently which had all of the hype curves running back the last 20 years stacked in one post. And Jim and I had a really good time looking through this and thought, well, why don't we every month take something from one of those previous hype curves and then have a bit of a talk about what's happened, right? So you picked out Bluetooth from 2001. Yeah, Bluetooth in 2001 was in the trough of disillusionment. Which means it had already kind of peaked, the hype had peaked, and God, Bluetooth in 2001 was unusably bad, if you don't remember that, listeners. If you buy the right tech now, it still is. <laughs> Bluetooth's still pretty bad now. I mean, What are those things called that you stick around that, that use Bluetooth um, that, that you have like in, open, in supermarkets? What, like beacons? Beacons, yeah. Like what useless tech yeah, is that? Beacons. Beacons we could talk about. So uh, We bought a set of those for the office. So we had a customer that in, had fitted them to an entire open area of London and insisted that we worked out a project that would make use of them. And did you? Well, it's, it's pointless because I've like, still got to make people install the app that can use the beacons and turn on Bluetooth, which kills their battery. So that's a no. It's a no. Okay. We didn't win the project. Uh, I wasn't a compelling strategist for that project. Why don't we give, give Gartner a pass-fail? Bluetooth, 2001, Trove Disillusionment played out about right didn't it it did reach the plateau afterwards and is now in every single device in our cars you know it's ubiquitous i suppose it is there and we do use it it's not my like tech of preference okay but i can currently see three devices you own that are communicating with bluetooth 
I think it's fair to say they succeeded with that one. And what about 3D printing from 2008 that was just on the way up from that kind of technology trigger moment to the peak of inflated expectations? You know, 3D printing, I think, is going to get there, but for me, is taking a bit longer than I think they suggested it would. Well, it was showing then it was five to 10 years away from hitting the plateau of productivity. So I guess I remember... Well, do you have a 3D printer? We have one at the office. Yeah, we do too. I don't, want, I don't have one at home yet, though. And I haven't used it in the office for three years. I look at our team at Wahai, a pretty technical group. A couple of them have got 3D printers and they actually use them. But I mean, what, 10, 15% of the team? And that's like the thick end of it, right? And if that's the case, I'd be very surprised if there's mass adoption really yet. Four years ago, we did a a team day and taught the whole team like how to do 3D modeling in a 3D printer. And then the year after that, in our charity quiz that we do every year, the third prize trophy was live 3D printed during the evening. (laughs) And I'd say that was like the peak of 3D printing agency craziness. It's all downhill from there, isn't it? And with Paul McCartney, we did do a project where uh, someone else had built the model, but we helped them launch on their website. It was to do with the soundtrack for a game. You could have a 3D printed model of Paul McCartney. Popular? I'm sure it was. Ours got stuck just before it got to his midriff. Oh, so it didn't finish off his head. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah. you, got, you got the important bit. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> <laughs> should we move on? <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for listening. That's the Jim and Rob show for the first episode of season three. Uh, it's time for an interview. It is nearly, but there is one more thing that's going to be coming up on future episodes because there's a little bit of news for me personally, and that's because I'm going to become a dad later in the year. So we're going to work in some dad tech. And I reckon we might fit in some marriage tech for you. I have no idea what... Wed that... tech. I... I think you already owned most of the wed tech. You already had a robot vacuum cleaner. Oh, you mean like the stuff people buy when they nest? Yeah, I had all of that. But maybe we... Yeah, all right. Both of those sections sound like they might be average, so we'll see how it goes. But. Average sections with Rob and Jim. <laughs> Let's do an interview. Who's with us this week, Rob? Okay, so coming up is an interview with the incredible Dan Harvey. I don't want to say too much now because I'm going to say it all again in a minute, but we're going to have a good old rant about some of the challenges with big tech. We're going to come back to the propaganda stuff we were talking about around Twitter, hear about the amazing work Dan does with the dots, and probably have a bit of a swear, I reckon. So if you've got young children... Uh, that enjoy listening to this in the car we apologize in advance this might not be the interview for you if you don't like a bit of effing and blinding we'll try our best not to be too bad but there no doubt one or two may slip in see how mark bleeps it out yeah we'll maybe, see how our maybe, well, maybe he won't <laughs> depends how he feels right back in a minute Welcome back to the Electrosoft Studio listeners. We're coming to you live from our studio in Shoreditch. It's a lovely summer's evening and we're here with my partner in crime, Mr. Bose. Good day to you, sir. Hello, Jim. And our fantastic guest, Dan Harvey. How's it going, Dan? It's going well. Thanks for asking. Dan is head of product design and brand at The Dots Global. We'll hear a bit more about The Dots in a moment. He's a diversity advocate, a writer, a speaker, a mentor. He's part of the Beamer 100 and I guess is passionate about building a better tomorrow today for the creative industries. Now that's the LinkedIn bio out of the way. Dan, to me, is someone who I have a great deal of love for as someone who just tells it how it is, frankly. Like I've seen Dan talk a number of times about various topics in a real kind of no bullshit, straight down the barrel kind of way. And 
ultimately this interview we're going to get to that kind of debate about some of the challenges going on around the big tech companies of the world today and how they're changing our world changing democracy and and stuff like that i'd love to start by just understanding a bit more about what the dots is dan for our listeners could you tell us a bit about the business and what you do sure so um the lovely folks at forbes have sort of asked if we're the next linkedin yep and are you well (laughs) i'd like to think that we're better Good answer. But we are next, at least in regards to sort of generational and other shifts in terms of the future of work. So I think it's fair to say that LinkedIn has done and has done a great job of creating a network primarily for white collar professionals based largely around their sort of CV as a construct because that wasn't giving them enough sort of daily active users. They sort of pivoted into broetry. Uh, so thanks Gary V fuck off now but what we're creating at the dots is is basically sort of sharing your work the actual creative outputs that you make in your professional life and it's targeted towards an audience that is rather than being sort of white collar professionals uh, we, we use the term no color professionals so these tend to be people who are younger millennial Gen Z etc and are people that sort of job hop rather than climb a job ladder. Their skills are more creative-led rather than managerial, and they're much more diverse audience ethnically and uh, through other means. So uh, we've sort of purpose-built a community for that kind of person to advance their career, really. So we help connect the dots, no pun intended, between professional opportunities, networking opportunities, etc. So fundamentally... A user of the dots is somebody who wants to create a kind of digital CV, much like somebody might have done with LinkedIn way back at the beginning. But you sort of, I hate saying reimagined. I feel like I should just not say that. (laughs) I feel like I'm from Silicon Valley when I say that. But you you have, right? You've reimagined what a digital CV could be for a different type of audience, for a different set of requirements. Rob, you could reach out to me if you want. I could. (laughs) And I'll say it in a different way. Oh, God. <laughs> You're based around people showing their work and their craft, really. Yeah, yeah. The, the CVs is kind of afterthought for us. We actually kind of think that the CVs dead and that you'll connect around the work that you do, whether that's through connecting with people who want to hire not just you, but yeah. the other people that helped produce the work, as well as people who enjoy the work or who've been responsive to the work will then want to connect to collaborate with you on future work. And how did you come to join the dot? Well, I was uh, approached back when I was still in agency consultancy land years ago by the founder and CEO, Pip Jamison, to be a mentor at one of the events that we put on. Uh, That's a portfolio masterclass. And I joined the dots in one of the first ones that they did for that. And so met Pip back in like 2014 or so had a really good experience with her at that and we've just been in touch ever since and so I was a CCO at a agency and she asked for my advice on a job description she was writing up for a head of product design role and I basically said uh, why don't I just why don't we just 
do this thing. Save you some time. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the job. Yeah. Basically. Cool. Yeah. We don't need to write the description. And for, <laughs> anyone done. That, for anyone that's met Pip, it makes a lot of sense that that was your reaction. So Yeah, Pip's a force of nature. She's fantastic. She's been in classes with me at Frame, to be honest. Oh, right. She's a framer. So yeah. so I've exercised with her, but I, I don't know particularly. But, uh, but, but, but we've both been in the that's same a, fitness that's classes. That's such a, a Jimbo's anecdote there. <laughs> Love that. Cool. Okay. And so sounds like it's going really well. I know you've you know, received lots of accolades and the platform's growing and you've been the featured app on the App Store from Apple and stuff like that. What's next for the dots, do you think? More of the same and continued growth and success? Is there what's coming up in the next year? We've got some new features that we're rolling out very soon. And we, we do take a very MVP lens when we launch new things. So not too long ago, we launched an events platform. We launched what we call an asks environment where people can basically ask a question of the community. Uh, and get feedback and advice and recommendations and things like that. So both of those are, are maturing features. We're showing sort of good signs, good signs with that stuff in terms of helping the community connect in different ways. But yeah, we've got new stuff right around the corner. So stay tuned. And what do you Great. think makes the dots different to other creative communities? So I guess there's things like uh, Dribble. There's a social network called Impossible that some people started that had a bit of a creative lens to it. I think in some respects we're fighting against a lot of different 800-pound gorillas, frankly. So sometimes people will go, oh, so you're a little bit like LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes people will go, you're a little bit like Behance or Dribble, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are lots of different companies that are providing sort of independent services around particular needs for this audience. And in a great many regards, we're the, we're the only place where you can go to get a little bit of everything, really. Right. So some people do even use their dots profile as a substitute for their own dot com, their own right. portfolio site kind of thing. But really, we bring people together to connect around basically making their lives better by virtue of joining the creative industries. And then by extension of that, because of who we're bringing into the creative industries, making the creative industries themselves better as well. And have you got any great stories of things that have occurred because of the platform? Well, one of the things that I'm really deeply proud of right now is that we're in the middle of our first cohort of what we call the Fast Track 50. And yeah. that is an initiative that we're piloting uh, with Google's help to basically bring 50 people into the creative industries who come from socioeconomically challenged backgrounds. So the, the real criteria into the program was that you kind of had to be under 25 and you had to either be the first person in your family to have a university degree or not have a university degree. So we've worked in partnership with a number of other great mentor and related programs like the US program, Brixton Finishing School, uh, Creative Mentor Network, Creative Equals, and a number of other great groups to, uh, out of those sort of mentor programs, each of those groups nominated people into the program. So it's not that this is a mentoring program, this is a way to basically we don't even call people in the program who are sort of in a mentor capacity mentors. We call them connectors because what they are supposed to be doing is connecting the dots and introducing these fast trackers to other people who can help them land their first role in industry. Cool. Great. Well, um, please do check out what everything the dots are doing. You can search for the dots or the URL is the-dots.com. 
and yeah, a great service, had lots of fantastic reviews from people that use it, right? So yeah, yeah, definitely. The next thing that I think would be great to talk about is you've recently launched a newsletter and some of your writing on it has been incredibly enjoyable. You're very articulate and you write very well. Tell us a bit about the journey with the newsletter and what your plans are for it. Sure. So as Rob mentioned, do have a bit of a reputation for being a kind of, as someone even called me a truth sayer. I chuckled at that. Better um, than Leo sayer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, That's what I'm here for. <laughs> obviously, I'm busy. There are a lot of things going on, both professionally and personally. I'm trying to get citizenship as this place spirals into a fucking dumpster fire. Sorry about that. You're welcome. How's it um, going so far? Yeah, so far so good. I have a biometrics appointment tomorrow, so maybe I'll be chipped and your CEO can get a message about me. If you show up in Dartford, we'll come and get you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and that's beyond the wall. That's all I know. Um, <laughs> if it's outside of zone two, I'm fucked. I'm also getting married soon, so lots of things going on professionally and personally. Yeah. So I've kind of had to scale back the speaking stuff, mm -hmm. but I wanted to keep those muscles sort of alive. So decided to start to rant into a lovely hate-filled package of <laughs> newsletterdom. So yeah, ranting into into the void and so far so good. People seem to be, seems to not be so much a void after all. And in the last three months, what are the three things that have made you most angry? Oh, 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 Jim. I have an <laughs> infinite reservoir of anger. I can even keep it to just three things. And I'm sure we'll, we'll no, touch well, let, on let's see where stuff. we go, right? But start with one. Well, obviously, I think the one of the things that I'm often sort of talking about is the role of social media in terms of signal boosting hate. And there was a fantastic paper that was made public today from a physics professor, actually, at George Washington University, a fellow named Neil Johnson, who led a team of researchers into studying how the ecologies of hate networks. And the team basically came up with a lot of interesting ideas about ways to reduce the influence of these groups. And a lot of them are completely different to the approaches that bigger companies like Facebook and Twitter are taking, right? So rather than sort of going after the big fucking known hate groups, your daily stormers or, or that kind of thing, uh, what they're recommending is identifying the sort of smaller, more isolated clusters of you know, the, the sort of fringe of these fringe networks, essentially, which often yeah. act as sort of feeders and ways to radicalize people into the bigger networks anyway. So they're recommending that you identify those groups, you target those groups for banning and things like that. But rather than banning the group outright, they're recommending sort of random targeting of small samples of each of these different groups so that you don't rustle up the entire hive or that they then move to sort of what they call dark pools where you can't track these groups and can't find the groups. They've also sort of recommended recruiting users who are sort of these hate groups. They're kind of weird. And their next sort of strategy is almost a little bit like StarCraft. Do you guys remember StarCraft? Oh, I, I can talk to you about StarCraft for a long time. My life for ire. <laughs> but basically what they're, what they're recommending is there are a number of these groups. So like say here in Europe, there are some white supremacists who are like, yeah, fuck it, a unified Europe, Hitler-like <laughs> regime, let's do this. And then there are others that are like, 
nah, man, unified Europe, fuck that shit. And so what they're recommending is that you take those two hate groups that have slightly different opinions, and then you throw them into a three-pronged conflict with like a Antifa type group and sort of see where the chips fall. And they think that's going to help somehow. Well, <laughs> it sounds like it's going to cause chaos. To well, me. what what it does exactly right, and so it's basically taking these hate groups that have slightly competing views and pitting them against each other, so that they combust basically one well, way or another. Well, and or so, so their outlet for their rage is another hate group. Yeah, which is great. It's a it's a little bit of a judo wow. move, a little bit of misdirection. But the other thing that it would, in their sort of theory, the other thing that it would do is it would basically so doubt in the minds of these participants, which if you're thinking about people who have just recently been radicalized into these groups, it might cause them to have some doubt. Right? Yeah, and, and, and maybe reconsider. Yeah, yeah sort exactly. Of doing some anchoring and playing with people's biases and, 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 and then maybe making them go, oh, okay, so there's, there's views so completely different. Yeah. And, and these people are clearly crazy, but in a kind of similar way to me. So I think it, what, what was interesting to me about that is clearly the platforms, whatever the, the steps that the platforms are taking are still not enough. Platforms in this context, you mean Facebook, Twitter, the large social media sites, maybe exactly. 4chan, Reddit, all that kind of stuff, right? 8chan, yeah. all these terrible fucking cesspools of hate. And, you know, we don't even have to look very far to sort of see where this stuff goes if we don't stop it, yeah. right? In Myanmar, Facebook, you know, there was a period of time in Myanmar, where not many people were connected to the internet. When they started connecting to the internet, Facebook was there, Johnny on the fucking spot. They very quickly became the dominant source of news in Myanmar. They had, it was a big growth market for them. It was there, it was like the biggest growth engine they had in Asia. Uh, so they were happy with it from a commercial perspective. And they had basically four content moderators overseeing the entire country, none of whom could actually speak Burmese. And so what happened was the dominant Buddhist regime in power, a number of key military officials used Facebook as a platform to promote hatred against the Rohingya Muslim population within the country. And as a result of all of this kind of shit, over 6,700 people fucking died. Facebook was an accessory to fucking genocide because all they could fucking muster was four content moderators who couldn't even fucking speak the language. And so the role platforms play, you know, as you put it, as an, as an accessory, as an enabler or, or, or otherwise, is one that is finally sort of entering the public debate it feels like to me like it seems like this is the year where some the of debate this is changing right yeah but that's part of it right as, as it comes to the surface i mean here we all are talking about it we can beat facebook up all day and maybe we'll come back to facebook but let's talk about youtube right because there's been a lot of stuff about youtube recently so i saw some really interesting stuff about how in brazil the far right or sort of right wing party came to power and they quite publicly acknowledged that without YouTube, they wouldn't have been able to do it, right? That they were able to kind of game the YouTube algorithm 
with these kind of quite extreme views that elicited an emotional response in people and they were able to put this content in front of people who previously maybe had never even considered some of that stuff and it converted them ultimately to voting for their party and supporting them and getting them into power and since then it's kind of spiraled into other regimes in other countries all over the world sort of whether you know be it fringe or otherwise coming out and saying yeah yeah absolutely without this YouTube algorithm stuff, we simply wouldn't have been able to gain any any recognition for what we're trying to do. And to an extent, you know, that's a pretty standard digital marketing campaign. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 you know, um, all of us in the world of agency kind of do, but we just, I guess, we just don't, our aims are different. Like we're trying to ha- like sell some widgets or... Are they really that different? Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not that different, <laughs> but, but, you know, they are also a little bit different. And so the other thing that Dan and I have talked about before is the child content stuff on YouTube that was just unbelievably shocking. So maybe we could talk briefly about that. Yeah, sure. So a little while back, I think in maybe 2017 or so, James Brittle, fantastic artist, designer, thinker in the digital space, did an investigation into a sort of disturbing trend he saw on YouTube. And to sort of radically simplify it. What he ended up sort of discovering were essentially algorithmically generated kids' videos whereby you might take, you know, it's it's clearly algorithmically generated because it's, these things are sort of like these weird mashups of like Peppa Pig and Elsa playing together, playing some like weird coded kids' game that has like weird racist group overtones or like pedophile overtones or all of this kind of stuff. And then like the Joker comes in and kick fucks one and choke fucks the other. Right. And it's like, Oh, holy fucking shit. What is this? And so that, that stuff is, you know, it's, it's tapping into the recommendation engines. Right. So it's like, Hey, Peppa Pig, you like Peppa Pig. And it was laced in, wasn't it? Right. So, so your, you know, your kid would be sat there watching videos and YouTube doing its thing, playing the next video it recommends if you don't touch anything. And suddenly, you know, little Toby, sorry, previously it was a cat. Now it's your fictitious child. Little Toby comes running in screaming, devastated because he's suddenly seen his favorite characters in some awful algorithmically generated sort of weird horror film. Or not, Rob, or not. Like he's seen it. He's not mentioned it to anyone. He's not come in screaming. He's thought about it and it's normalized whatever that stuff is. I, I, I actually saw that take place. So I was in a pub a uh, Christmas party with some, with some friends. One of our friends has a young son and I was watching him watching YouTube and I sort of made a note of the sort of first video that they had teed up for him and it was near as I could tell a legit sort of video and you know three or four videos after I was like hey hey now and I sort of took the iPad away and showed it to his parents and it was just like this shit is I mean YouTube Based on Brittle's deep fucking investigation, you should sort of you should look at look into it. It's a it's a medium post by James called something is horrible on the internet or something like that. Yeah, fantastic investigation, deep investigation. He exposed several uh, several of these samples. YouTube saw the medium post methodically sort of started to take each of them down, but the me- mechanisms are still in place. It's still happening. And there's essentially a point where you would imagine that because YouTube has fantastic copyright infringement fighting technology, 
that some of this shit could be stopped just by leveraging that kind of tech. And in fact, that's even a strategy that people who fight these hate groups take advantage of, right? So like people who fight Nazis, people who are counter to Nazis go to Nazi protests and they play really loud fucking pop music. No way. So that they can sort of do a copyright infringement request, take down notice on the video. You know, copy fighting some of this shit, you know, these things are algorithmically generated. So fighting AI with AI, you know, there there have to be ways forward to, to solve this stuff. Let's ground this in the reality of why it's possible, why it happens. So ultimately, the, the reason that these platforms recommend content is because they want you to remain on their platform as long as possible. And the reason they want you to remain on their platform as long as possible is because your attention has value because if you are paying attention, they can serve you advertising, right? Like Correct. It really comes down to that. And so, I mean, this is the, the billion dollar question, I guess, is so how do you replace that incentive structure with something else? And a lot of people are starting to think that maybe for as long as advertising is the primary driver for these businesses, there will always be this interplay between maximizing advertising revenue versus you know, inverted commas doing the right thing. And uh, you know, a lot of this dark stuff that's been enabled by these platforms has happened through the same mechanisms, as Jim so rightly put it, that enable fantastic digital marketing to happen. But unfortunately, are also in the you know in in nefarious hands can be kind of turned on us and and can do all of these horrible, potentially very damaging things, whether it's to our democracy or to our children or whatever. Well, well it's interesting, isn't it? Because you if you look at like one of the ways to do that is you know YouTube has a premium model. You can pay. There are no ads. Yeah. But I assume I don't know at the moment you get the same algorithm for recommendation on the premium version. But let's say if you have the premium version, you get a, a different algorithm. But then you're starting to create a sort of two-tier sort of class society. So the people that can afford premium get the, ch- the minds of their children warped less. Uh, and the people that are stuck on the free model are, are left in the sort of pit of misery uh, to wallow in the digital ghetto. And I've heard people say that already, that this emergence of services like Netflix, Spotify, etc., where the paid versions aren't ad-supported, is already creating a scenario where, you know, the poor have to endure the advertising right and it's it's kind of a luxury of the rich to not have to deal with being bombarded with advertising all the time it's a really good point we're not going to solve this today because frankly we'd all be on yachts if we knew the answer but what can these guys do how can we begin to turn the tides with these platforms and some of these challenges what do you guys we, think? we might have open sourced it rob and not been on the yacht well you know <laughs> you know what i mean you know, I do think the fundamental thing that they have to do, because you're right, it's all about incentives, right? And and in some respects, advertising is the original sin, not just of the internet, but certainly of social media. And part of the reason why it's so systemic is because, particularly venture capitalists in San Francisco, whereby, and this is this, this is a fun thing, right? You guys are both fantastic tech CEOs. You've started up businesses here in the UK where you actually probably had to show some kind of business model and a, and a revenue model and maybe even had to earn some fucking money before you even got funding, am I right? Or, or didn't get funding at all because funding is so hard to get without evidence by the time you have evidence i think we've both bootstrapped you've already got a business right right and so that's completely fucking different in america 
in America, the, the community comes first, right? Because they're assuming they can extract value from hundreds of thousands, millions of people, in Facebook's case, 2.5 billion people or 2.8 billion people, whatever the fuck it is now. And the community comes first, and then the business model comes later. Because of that sort of original sin, the lazy default thinking of VCs and CFOs and COOs is, well, we'll just we'll just toss some advertising onto it after after we've got enough people. Because it's the simplest way to monetize a large audience. Sure. Right. We talk an awful lot about how disruptive these companies are. Advertising is not a disruptive fucking business model. It's centuries old fucking business model. You want to show me that you're disruptive? Come up with a new fucking business model. That in and of itself is not going to change, obviously, for some of these companies. So I think we have to look at other ways to change that. So I guess the question is, what do we think that model might be? You know, it's so difficult, isn't it? It's like... I've seen some people talk about this and they just say, what if you just made less money? You know, like that's the, their answer to this question is like, couldn't you just make 25% less profit and, you know, be much more considerate in your execution of the implementation of advertising, right? Maybe that, maybe, maybe it's marginal actually what changes, but it can have a big impact. Well, I think that you, uh, and where you get to, if you look at what uh, Facebook themselves have said is that they've, they've pretty much asked the world to legislate more to give them a framework in which to operate. So they've gone, we can't solve this. Tell oh, us. We can't help but make as much money as you'll let us. So tell us not yeah, to. to. Tell us to make less money. Mm. Uh, well, meanwhile, they're spending even more sums of money on K Street, which is where all the, all the lobbyists live in Washington, D.C., yeah. to actually guide that legislation from backroom conversation. And they're sort of... Facebook is legislating in the court of public opinion as well, right? So their go-to sort of boogeyman right now is... If you regulate us, then fucking China. What about China, man? And that's obviously bullshit. It's a feint. But there's regulation. And obviously in, in, this, in the States, there's a lot of conversation on both sides of the political aisle around that. Some of it's genuine. Uh, people like uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who was one of the co-authors of Section 230, which you all probably hear a lot about. Uh, if you haven't already, but he's also had a proposal where he's recommending that CEOs of these companies face fucking jail time for things like privacy breaches and stuff like that. If Zuckerberg had to do a fucking perp walk, that would change things. Yeah. And yeah. I would get a boner. <laughs> but instead, he's going to help uh, run a privacy cafe for you. Yeah, exactly. He's offer you a free coffee. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I just, I, I, it's just not going to happen, is it? Because... Some of these private companies are like nation states. I mean, the amount of wealth they have, unfortunately, means they are insurmountably powerful and, and control huge segments of government through lobbying and financial sure. support and stuff like that. So I can't, <laughs> see a, I, I can't see a Trump administration putting anyone from the Twitter exec in jail. Oh, they'd love to toss some of those people into jail because they're arguing... They're filtering the conservatives. Exactly, right? which yeah. is obviously a non-thing because they're making all of this money from these shitty hate-filled conservative motherfuckers. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, there's no bias against those people. And, and there have been studies about this. So, people who identify to the left of the center and people who identify to the right of the center 
their engagement patterns with content on the platforms is, is very similar. That is evidence right there that there is no bias. But if you look at the sort of star performers on these platforms, it's invariably the far right wing institutions, right? Fox News tops fucking engagement on things like Facebook. Epoch Times, a conservative rag uh, that, that's sort of been in the news lately as well, yeah. in part because of their connections to China and the protests and things like that that are going on right now. It's so hard to be bipartisan in this conversation, right? But, and as someone that is not right-wing personally, I sort of have to try and check myself and be like, well, maybe this is just my view and my bias. But it does feel to me like the reason for that is because the people on the right are much more comfortable, let's say, with making extreme claims which are perhaps not as connected to reality as they could be. I'm being very polite and diplomatic in how I'm saying that. Uh, folk news. And we live in this kind of post-truth era. And unfortunately, those sort of salacious, extreme claims are the things that create outrage and create engagement and sure. therefore are more valuable to the platforms. Sure. And, and feed the algorithms. Yeah. Absolutely. Because those are the things that, you know, we, we talked about the uh, US election a long time ago and, and how you are six times more likely to see pro-Trump content. And, yeah. And, 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 but that's... That's the food. And so oh, it's a bit of a depressing kind of conclusion to this ramble, but I don't really see how it changes anytime soon because of that truth that those types of content producers create more engagement and that still remains the most valuable thing. And so my question was, because as you said, it, like it, this is a sort of a slightly dark point in this conversation. I was going to ask a fresh question and say, what was the last thing that you saw that gave you hope? Hope for social media? Uh, hope for big tech? Well, I think, you know, to my mind, I think there are still things that we can do, even if you don't tackle the business model problem, right? Okay. Even if you um, go to the root of the problem, there are still things that you can do. So there's a designer named Tobias Rue Stockwell, uh, who's done a lot of explorations around what, what uh, he, he calls about making it easier to be kind, designing okay. for kindness. Sounds good. Uh, and he's had a, a lot of sort of ideas around where if, as you're sort of typing in a comment on some social media platform, smart machine learning could sort of tell you, hey, wait a second, this, this might hurt the person's feelings. Do you want to reconsider? This is an inflammatory comment. Do you want to take it to a personal chat instead? And, and things like that. There are smaller mechanisms that you can sort Little of... Little nudges almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that you could sort of bake into the sort of fundamental interactions, right? I also think that a lot of people constantly ask, well, all right, so if I shouldn't be on Facebook, if I shouldn't be on Twitter, if I shouldn't be on Instagram, or well, where the fuck should I be? You know, what is... Dan, tell me, what's the next Facebook? That's a problem, right? Because the assumption is that we have to have... Facebook in the first place, let alone a next Facebook. We don't. You know, part of the problem with that we're seeing here is the scale, is the fact that there are 2.8 billion people centralized in one location, which is obviously madness, right? If we sort of had smaller, sort of community-driven, interest-based networks as we used to have back in yieldy days it would be a lot harder to have things be signal boosted in the first place. It would be a lot harder for trolls and propagandists to target a single venue and a single vector and a single algorithm 
to sort of make these things happen. There's a, a lovely sentiment. I can't remember who said this, but they were like, okay, so imagine what Putin's campaign for election interference would have been in 2000, yeah. right? Posting some fucking shitty ads to Craigslist. I mean, these problems are Bit happening. Direct mail. Exactly, right? So these problems are happening in large part, not just because of the model, but because of the scale. If we sort of remove those assumptions, we can create new networks that don't necessarily have those problems. And frankly, you know, a lot of the logic is based on, well, we need all this data. We need all these people to drive the engines that deliver programmatic ads. I get programmatic ads for African-American hair care products. I have curly hair. I mean, I, not yeah, quite that not, curly. It's great hair. I mean, uh, this won't come over in a podcast format, but I can sort of see why. <laughs> so, so you know, there's 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 something to yeah. be said that for all this data, sure, it's it, still shit most of the time. Yeah. So fuck it. Say no to programmatic ads. Just fucking go back to classic fucking ads and make people pay through the tooth for the ad space and uh, avoid these sort of engines that allow for algorithmic manipulation. Facebook's algorithms for their ad buying allowed people to basically exclude black people from seeing ads for housing, which is illegal in the U.S. So if you remove the programmatic engine uh, as well, then maybe something, maybe things change. So Dan, another area that I know you're very interested in, and I think you're pitching a talk at South by this year as well on this very very subject, is the kind of new age of propaganda and, and propaganda in the digital world. Tell us a bit about your thoughts on that and, and maybe what your what your talk would be about. I'm just still stuck with a, an image of Putin working out which uh, category in Craigslist he should put his propaganda into. <laughs> Do you send us your suggestions, Craigslist fans? <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, in, into the sort of like pen pal section or something. Uh, missed connections. <laughs> That's the one, yeah. Uh, you know, I do think a lot of what we've been talking about does dovetail with, with propaganda, obviously. Yeah. And we did talk about sort of propaganda in Myanmar. You know, obviously, we've we've sort of hinted about Farage and and Boris and the fucking Brexit bus and all of that kind of garbage, right? Jim Jim sort of rightly pointed out that uh, these sort of they're coming to arrest you. Yep, I've said fuck one time too many. <laughs> you know, Jim rightly pointed out that some of the the sort of more Rob, you mentioned salacious, some of the more salacious things sort of get richer engagement. But I think part of the reason why why it was so important for us to talk about the sort of outrage economy is that's what's being piggybacked on to make propaganda happen on these platforms, right? Yeah. So I've talked a lot about how there is a groundwork from a political strategy perspective that has also enabled what we're seeing from a tactics perspective that's happening today on social media. And that goes all the way back to the 70s to, to people like Henry Kissinger, and his theories around constructive ambiguity and Reagan and perception management and Karl Rove and his reality-based communities theories, all the way up to the sort of modern master of all of this stuff, who is Vladislav Surkov and his concept of nonlinear warfare. And basically uh, what Surkov does and the Russian IRA, their sort of internet troll factory, is clearly working at the behest of Surkov. They'll basically... What they do is they sort of spin up some propaganda over here and then sort of spin up a sort of antithetical statement over here to sort of propagate sort of 
divides that are sort of in a in a country that they're trying to almost an adjacent message slightly in a slightly different direction and and then what they'll do is they'll take credit for the first message and then soon thereafter they'll take credit for the other message too which causes people to go well what the fuck i don't even know what's true anymore i don't know you know i thought this was a sentiment i cared about but it's clearly been manipulated and and fuck it i just can't trust anything anymore so i'll just bury my head in the sand this sort of constant state of confusion almost exactly yeah and so that's what they're doing and in america in the 2016 election and you can rest assured it's still going to happen in the 2020 election because nothing has been done to fucking stop any of this whether that's from the platforms or from the government so the republican trump's administration mitch mcconnell and the as the GOP leader in, in, the, in Congress, they've blocked bills that have been proposed to stop this kind of stuff. Funny that, right? But what they've done is they've clearly saw the sort of racial divide in the U.S. and they've weaponized dissent. So one of the things that the Russian meddling campaign did was spin up a number of groups that were kind of these caricatures of Black Lives Matter with names that were similar but different uh, to, to stand up and, and sort of take advantage of people who had very real concerns and even using messages that were pirated from some of these real groups. Uh, and so they've basically weaponized dissent. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, we don't have to look much further than the BBC to see how propagandists like Farage have weaponized objectivity, right? So... Uh, Farage has been the politician that has been on the BBC the most because arguably the BBC has to provide equal airtime. Yeah, it's all balanced coverage nonsense. Yeah, so all of this stuff is deeply related and correlated. But, you know, those are just some of the tactics that that propagandists are using to take advantage of the, the newer platforms. And do you think the path of that is, so you see no no improvement anytime soon, not for the next US election is there a path to that improving? I feel like I'm the one that's trying to like bring this around to some level of positivity somewhere in the mix. You know, I'll complain about stuff until the cows come home, but it does me no good to just complain, right? So we have to be talking about solutions here. Yeah. And I think what is interesting is some of the Scandi countries have seen a sort of reduction in the adoption and spread of fake news because they have been going through for the last few years now, extensive public-wide education on media literacy. And that's working. In schools or just everywhere? And bombarding it? Public Broadcast. locations yeah, and yeah. all of this kind of stuff. I guess right? like in a way that we would have a drink-driving campaign. Yeah, okay. Like yeah. public awareness type stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, and that's working. It's paying dividends. So we can institute sort of cradle-to-grave learning in Western democracies around media literacy, right? We can... We can enhance that by providing the same for algorithmic literacy, right? Why am I seeing this stuff? Why has this been recommended to me? What can I do to change that? Yeah. You know, it used to be that if you bought a goddaughter or a godson a gift on Amazon, you'd get fucking recommendations for the rest of your life. And then they finally realized, yeah, all right, let's give someone the ability to take that out of the processing. Uh, so there, there are things that, that we can do to, to sort of stem the tide of this. Uh, so, and, and things that we have to do, right? Whether that's from a from policy perspective, from, from government, from on high, 
or from the executives and designers and technologists at these platforms, and also from our own consumption. So there are things that we can do to stem the tide of that as well. You know, we can we can sort of change our relationship to technology, uh, whether that's through some of the some of the tactics from people like the time well spent movement or looking into approaches to calm technology by people like Amber Case. But also we can sort of change our relationship and how we consume news, right? We need to break the breaking news cycle yeah. as well. We, yeah. Slow news has to be a sort of course of action for, for many of us as well. And you sort of touched on it there that, that people that work in this industry, we have, a, uh, we, have a, we have a responsibility in the things that we design and the things that we create to uh, do it consciously, I suppose. Yeah, as employees, we can also take fucking collective action. You asked what was hopeful, what was inspiring earlier, and the sort of Google walkouts were absolutely yep. a galvanizing moment. And yes, a lot of those people have faced retribution and are out at Google, but until we actually put down our fucking tools and take up picket signs, take up protest signs, you know, the powers that be at the companies that, that, that a lot of us work at aren't going to fucking respond. They're just not going to take notice. There we go. Plenty in 2019 to protest about in many countries of the world. Actually, if, if we're too splintered, interestingly, with, with, with mammoth platforms in uh, 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 which to sort of battle against and governments to, to battle against, then making sure that we create enough focus for ourselves on the things that really matter. And that's why that sort of variety of opinion is why you actually don't see as much propaganda activity from people on the left. Because people on the left care about a variety of issues. They're not galvanized around these sort of single-issue tactics that people on the right are. So it spreads out the messaging. It's really interesting. It's been a little bit morbid, as our interviews go, but with good reason, because I think this is a really important topic. And I think the first challenge with this is just awareness. I think people just need to understand that it's happening and... It's all very well trying to educate people, but if they don't understand why they should want to be educated in the first place, they probably don't respond very well to the messaging, is my view. I'm that person that would never pay attention in school if I didn't think I needed to know the thing I was being taught. So, you know, I hope that conversations like this and maybe, you know, the talk that I hope you get to give at South by next year and, and the kind of ongoing dialogue about all of this stuff starts to bring it to the fore in a way that means people do pay attention to it and start to take a more active interest in what's going on and then ultimately seek out that education whether it's provided publicly or or otherwise and i'm eternally hopeful for younger generations than ours for being more savvy about what 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 social media is and does uh, and and how they should interact with it and i think you know as people that have arrived in our lifetimes i think you know all of this has developed while we've been around uh, but people can now be more savvy to these these things and and are i think and i, and I do think younger people are if you if you look at the source uh, the, the sort of propagation points for a lot of the disinformation that's happening on on social platforms it's actually baby boomers right it's your mom yeah. it's your dad that are spreading a lot of this stuff Ah, oh, boomers. And, yeah. you know, busy reposting uh, Thanks, weird messages that where they think that if they don't, then, you know, Facebook owns part of their data, but, yeah. like, they already own that data, don't worry. <laughs> Misunderstanding how memes work. Yeah. And, look, technology is, as much as it can be a force for bad, it's also the thing that can enable good. I mean, like, personally, since we recorded the last podcast, me and my co-founders have launched a business called Offset Earth, where you can sign up for £4 a month, plant some trees and offset your carbon, and in three months, with no funding, simply 
by wrangling technology effectively, we've managed to plant 80,000 trees and have you know hundreds of members. And yeah, yeah it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great uh, product. So you really can take it into your own hands and do something about it. And I, I think know it would really help Offset Earth. It would be a sponsorship deal with Alexa Stock. <laughs> I think maybe it just got one, Jim. What do you reckon? Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. But other than obviously shamelessly plugging something I'm doing, which because it's for good and I make no money from, I feel like I can do. The point stands for me. It's like the technology and this huge global audience that we all have access to now can rally the troops too, right? If you can get the message right and you can get build the right product. And so, you know, we talk about generational thing. Well, I think some of the answers to these questions will be when it isn't Zuckerberg who's in charge anymore. And it's that next generation of people who've grown up with a different construct and a different understanding of what's important. And it's their platforms that will be the ones that will ultimately herald in a new era. So I guess the challenge and the, the question I, I, I would leave you all with is how do we get from where we are now to there? Because it might take 20 or 30 years and I worry about what might happen in the meantime. Post Zuck. Post well, Zuckerberg. Yeah, I think, I think the key is about making new networks. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a, a worthy challenge that we should all be rising up to. Great. Thanks, Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. So that was episode 22 of Alexa Stop. Well, what a great interview. Amazing interview. Certainly one of the more challenging topics we've discussed personally, because it's quite devastating, some of the impact that the stuff we talked about is having, but a really important theme and something that I hope people enjoyed listening to and and learning more about. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, You can, of course, keep up with us on Disruption Magazine and DisruptionHub.com. And you can get on with our socials at... Alexa underscore swap on Twitter and that's about it for social media. We're a single platform entity. There you go. Keep up with us on all your usual podcast channels. Thanks.